You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. But welcome for those who have just joined us for this week. I'm going through a six-week teaching series on the gospel and how it applies to all of our life. Um, and so this week we're looking at the gospel and our resources, or more importantly, the gospel and our money, because that's where it, the rubber hits the road most pertinently and most um, subjectively for all of us. But um, if you've been in these classes since the beginning, you might be getting a little bit frustrated if you're anything like me, you might be getting a little bit frustrated because I'm not giving you a list of things that you now do in the Christian life. I'm talking about gospel, 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 gospel. The point is that I don't want you to go away from these classes thinking, okay, this is what I've now got to do with my money. This is what I now need to do with my relationships. But I want to give you a framework of how the cross and resurrection, there's plenty of room up the front <laughs> or over this side. You can interrupt, it's all right. I want to give you a framework for how the cross and resurrection of Jesus shapes our life. Come in, come in. It's very casual in here. He was That's right. That's right. I want to, basically I want to reflect on how the grace of God changes the way that we live and and changes the way that we use our time and money. So there's no rule of how little or how much you should give. Um, there's no rule about whether saving money or having 401ks is right or wrong. But I want you to know that the love of God, uh, that the love that God has for you in Christ and the security that he brings to your life should change the way that you use your money. And I want you to know the freedom that you have in the gospel to be free with your money, to live your life before God and others without guilt. And I keep reiterating this at the start of my lessons because we need to be reminded again and again of the gospel. Uh, we constantly need to hear the good news so that our stubborn hearts come to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he loves us and that God loves us in Jesus. And this is certainly true with money. Money is arguably the thing that Jesus talked about the most in the Gospels. Uh, and so we're going to reflect on that today. But firstly, what I need to say is that material things in themselves are not evil. So it's not money is the root of all evil, but it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Material things in themselves are not evil, but our use of them and our love for them can become evil. And this is certainly the case with our love of money and of greed. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you should all know this, hopefully. And from this, we learn that the material world is good. In Genesis 1 and 2, God says, it was good, it was good, it was good. The material creation is good. We also learn that God is the creator and sustainer of all these good things. Everything that we have comes from him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, What do you have that you did not receive? The problem, though, we find is that... Hey, welcome. The problem is these two. No, 
<laughs> Come and sit down. It's all right. You know I care deeply for you. <laughs> Talking about the creation and how God created all things. But the problem is that sin distorts our relationship to God and to the creation. Instead of worshipping God, as Andrew was talking about this morning, and we'll talk about it at 11, instead of worshipping God and giving thanks to Him, recognising Him as the gracious ruler and sustainer of all things, we worship the things that He has created, the things He's given us. So Paul writes about how sin distorts our desires in the first chapter of Romans. So Romans 1, 21 to 15, he says, that doesn't make sense. I went backwards, didn't I? 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Due to our hearts being captured by this sin, we love the things of this world more than we love God. And so we then seek fulfilment and satisfaction in those things that He's given us. We often want control over those good gifts. We want to use them the way that we like. We want to be the one who's on the throne. Sin makes us selfish and wasteful with all that we have and all that we are. And because of this sin, we fail to understand the proper use and relationship we have of money. We think that money can produce for us more than it is able to. And so we seek to get from money the things that we should be getting from God. Security, safety, happiness. And when we do this, we run into all sorts of problems. So in Matthew 6, Jesus warns of the problems with money and resources. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So Jesus here explores the problems of money. Firstly, he says that money is only a temporary thing. It's just a gift, a resource. It's not meant to be hoarded, but rather exchanged for goods and services. Money is only worth as much as we are willing to exchange for it. The market may fluctuate. There might be inflation. Banks might go broke. Your identity or your wallet might get stolen. Your bank account hacked. Your house robbed. You might lose your job. You might get ill, you might have a life-threatening illness. Jesus may come back tomorrow. You never know what the future will hold. You never know what tomorrow might bring. Therefore, it's, it's foolish to trust in money for your security and satisfaction because it's just a temporary thing. It's very fleeting. Secondly, money distracts us from trusting in God. Far too often I put my own trust in money rather than God. If I just have enough money in my bank account, if I just have that little window seal where I can rest my assurance on in my bank account, then I'm going to be okay. If I just have the right job, then I'll be okay. I seek security in the bottom line of my bank account 
rather than in God. And so I'm asking money to do more for me than it can. I ask it to protect me from the evils of this world, from my mistakes and from just little accidents that might happen, from hardship and from suffering. I ask it to fulfill my desires and satisfy my deepest longings and my loneliness. Thirdly, greed always wants more. There is no way that things of this world will ever satisfy you. If there's one thing that I want you to take out from this class is that the things of this world will not satisfy you. The problem with money is that we will never have enough of it. We always want more. This is true of all the resources that you have in your life. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. I guess, I know that's true in my life. I can only assume it's also true in your life. But the good news is, the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is not a material richness that we're talking about. The Bible does not guarantee that you'll be blessed in this life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The Bible says that for those who follow Christ, there's going to be hardship and suffering. As we take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, there's going to be a lot of suffering. The reason for this is that sin is often the most enjoyable thing to do. It's very tempting to do sin and we like to do it. But, sorry, I've just lost my place. Uh, Sin gives us instant gratification. That's why we like to do it. And when we seek to turn away in repentance and faith, this goes against everything that we want, everything that the world and the flesh is telling us. We want to do sin and we hate not doing it. We hate turning away from it. But we are not saved to become materially wealthy, but we are given a spiritual wealth. We're made rich in spiritual blessings. Ephesians chapter 1 says that every spiritual blessing in Christ is ours. Through being united to Christ, everything that Jesus has becomes ours. So that one day, just as he was raised back to life, we too will be raised in glory. So through the gospel, our heart is set free from the corruption uh, that distorts our hearts and seeks to love the things of this world more than God. Through our new birth in Christ, our relationship to God is restored and our relationship to his creation is restored so that we have a right understanding of the gifts that God has given us and their place in our life. And we no longer seek to find satisfaction in them or gratification in them. The solution to our problem, your problem of greed, is not to try and become less greedy. The solution is not to try and become less greedy, but to turn your gaze onto Christ, to look at the cross and find satisfaction in Him. If we try to be less greedy, if it's by our own efforts, then we are the ones who are in control. We think that we can save ourselves. But this is only the work that God can do. Our work is not to be try to become better people, but to turn our gaze to Christ. Focus ourselves on the cross, knowing that His death means our forgiveness. Knowing that our future is secured in His work. That we have great treasures in heaven. And then we are free to relate 
properly with God, knowing that He's the giver of all good gifts. We then don't need to ask money to do more than it's designed for, but we can use it properly and generously, knowing that God provides for all our needs and trusting that He will do so, knowing that He is faithful to His promises as He's shown us in the cross of Jesus Christ, sending the long-awaited-for Messiah that He had promised. Tim Keller writes, this might, I think this is on your handout if you've got a handout. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you the security. Now you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. Money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. What breaks the power of money over us is not just redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ, what you have in Him, and then living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart. The seed of your mind, will, and emotions. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations our self-understanding and identity, our view of the world, behavioural compliance to the rules without complete change of heart will be superficial and fleeting. So if we are freed from seeking satisfaction and from trying to love money, how, how are we to relate money in this freedom? Well, the answer to that is to be stewards of God's gifts. Through the gospel, we can truly see that God is the owner and provider of all things. And we can trust in Him for His provision. And with this this understanding comes the knowledge that we don't own the things of this world, but we merely use them. We, We steward them around. We are just guardians of the resources. Like an airline stewardess, we are to take care of the things that have been entrusted to us. And we are to do this in response to what Christ has done for us. So the way that we live and the way that we use our money and resources is to reflect the love that Christ has for us, the love that God has for us in Christ's death and resurrection. Peter reminds us of this in his letter, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 21. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. See, our whole life now belongs to God because of Christ's death and resurrection, because He ransomed us for Himself. It's not just the first 10% that we give to God. Now, I've heard some churches say that during their collection time that we give our, our God's tithes and our offerings. Now, I like, I like that idea in terms of teaching the congregation how to give, in that we give 10% and then more. But it does not understand, it doesn't teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and that everything belongs to Him. We don't just give Him our first 10%, we give Him our whole life. Everything belongs to God, it's all His. 
So this, our, uh, God's tithes and our offerings is a faulty view of the gospel. If you seek to live by a rule of tithing of just the 10%, then you'll focus on that rule. You'll be fixated on trying to do that rule rather than trying to love God. This is what happened with the Pharisees. They were so focused on trying to tithe the 10%. They would, they would tithe their herbs and their spices. They forgot to care for those that were around them. The gospel reorientates our understanding of these resources that God has given us. And it frees us to see that everything is a good gift from God. Therefore, we don't have to give him actually anything because it's already his. He owns it. We just get to use it. And so we can use it more generously. We can share it more generously. We don't just give him our first 10%. We give him everything we have. Our whole life is an offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says this in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, allows you to let go of all your earthly possessions, knowing that God is in control, that he is faithful. He will protect you from the things of this world. The question is not, what must I give, but how much can I give? Giving is not just another thing that you have to do, though. It should flow out of your love for God and your trust in Him, your gratitude towards Him. See, we are not owners of the things of this world. We are just stewards. The way we use our money and resources should be in ways that are guided by our love for God and others. Now, I want to do a little bit of an exercise. Who has their wallet on them or a purse? Everyone should. Good. I want you to take it out. Grab your credit card or debit card or checking account card, whatever you crazy Yankees call it. It should have a name on it. Whose name is on that card? Your name. (laughs) I'll take that off you, Tommy. Whose name should be on that card? God's. We think that just because our name is on our card that we own the money that's in our bank account. We think that it's ours. We think that we deserve it because we've earned it. You can put your cards away now. Actually, I'll take them up as a collection. All the money in your bank account is God's. It's, it's not yours. It's not yours to use as you want. It's yours to steward as a resource for his kingdom and for his glory. In their book, The Poverty of the Nations, theologian Wayne Grudem and economist Barry Asmus argue that the best way to solve poverty uh, in this world is through free market economics. I just want to reflect on capitalism for a little bit. I'm I'm not a socialist by any means, so (laughs) hold back your daggers. Uh, But in the first chapter of this book, The Poverty of the Nations, they introduce the goal that they are seeking to attain. They write, in order to solve the problem of poverty in a poor nation, it is important to have the correct goal in mind. To discover this goal, we must first understand two economic concepts that determine whether a country is rich or poor. 
per capita income and gross domestic product. Once those concepts are understood, it becomes evident that if we want to solve poverty, the correct goal is that a nation continually produces more goods and services per person each year. That was a big statement, but can anyone see the problem in this statement in trying to solve poverty that way? There's no dumb answers. Poverty has to do with how much money you have. Yep. Sorry, I should... It's, this is a game of what's in Michael's head, so it's, that's a very difficult, difficult game. Uh, theologically, how do we approach this as, Christ, as Christians? What, is, what do we think the problem of this statement is? That to solve poverty, we just needed people to produce more things each year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's human-centered, isn't it? Yeah. Dependent on man. It's yeah. Dependent. And what if you don't? Then you remain poor. Yeah, yeah. According to that definition. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, coffee, sorry. I had a friend that advocated free market <coughs> enterprise to the point that he saw no need to regulate medical education and doctors, that the market would identify the good doctors and the bad doctors. Yeah by the number of corpses that left their office, which is sort of a grim thought about letting the free market rule yeah. everything. Yeah. Well, before we get into a big debate about free market economics, <laughs> let's hold that there. I, I am for free market, but with regulation. Um, that's not an official advent statement. That's just a Michael Wiggs <laughs> statement. Um, the problem with this statement is that their solution is all anthropocentric. It's all about trying to do better. But they miss the systemic nature of this world, the systemic nature of sin that infects every inch of our world, our hearts, our government, our markets, everything. So the problem is that the solution is wrong. So despite Wayne Grudem being an excellent theologian, he doesn't bring any of his theological uh, brain into this, into this solution. He's failed to understand the way that sin affects this world. I suggest if we just have the right structures, if we just have the right government, then we can save the world. We can create a poverty-free world and that a free market will solve this problem. It's just like the progressive left arguing that if we just have enough love, then we will save the world. I ranted about that a few weeks ago. But the problem is that poverty is not a wealth or production problem, even though that is part of it. But poverty is also a sin problem. There's a complex set of factors that lead to poverty. And I'm not saying that capitalism and free market economics is wrong, but I'm saying that even in countries where we have a free market, poverty is not solved. I was listening to, maybe you're listening to this on NPR, they're talking about San Francisco and the homeless problem they have in San Francisco. California has one of the biggest economies in the States, in the world. I think it's one of the five largest economies in the world. And yet... There is so much homelessness in California, in San Francisco in particular. Over the past few decades, uh, this is a quote from it. Over the past few decades, San Francisco has spent billions of dollars on its homeless problem. Billions of dollars, think about that. I would just like one billion dollars, not billions of dollars. What I'm saying is that capitalism and free market economics will not solve the poverty of this world. Only the gospel can set us free 
from the idols that have captured our hearts, such as greed, power and success. Now, I was talking to a friend last week after church uh, at the Pazitz Hall. She'd just come back from travelling around the world uh, and I asked her what she'd learned and experienced in her travels. She'd been in Southeast Asia for a little bit. She'd been in Bali and she commented on the idol, the idolatry of the Southeast nations. They have lots of statues of Buddha and lots of temples and she was astonished of the idolatry of, of these nations. But this revealed something to me about her heart because she was confronted by the physical idols and not the kind of spiritual or heart idols. She wasn't confronted by the materialism or the consumerism that I know exists in a place called Kuda in Bali. It was these statues of Buddha that confronted her the most, not the idolatry of materialism and consumerism that has captured the heart of some of these cities. The idolatry of the West is not found in statues of wood and stone, but in greed and in materialism. We love, I, sorry, when I say we, I, I mean I love money and greed and the benefits that come from it far too much. Our idols may not look like these statues of golden calves or statues of men, but they often come in subtle tones. They come in the form of shopping malls, of football stadiums, of country clubs, of double car garages, big screen TVs or travel experiences. And I know there are many idols in my own heart of travel and greed and experience and wanting TVs and all sorts of things, wanting cars, buying new things, collecting books that I'll never read. These idols distract me, they distract us from God and show us where our heart, where our heart really is. They show us what we really want to love. Paul warns Timothy about idolatry of, about the idolatry of money and greed, writing in 1 Timothy 6, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager, eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many graves. Jesus warns us also in Luke chapter 12. Watch out, he says. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's, that's a big one. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I feel like sometimes my life is determined by how many things I have. Well, I hope you're feeling guilty. I hope you're feeling guilty. That's not the point. I want you to... The point, I don't know what the point is. What's the point, Michael? The point of today's lesson is that I want you to assess your life and whether you are worshipping money because I think this is a big idol for us in the West. I think in Birmingham as well and especially at the Advent, I think. There's lots of wealth, there's lots of money and so it can sometimes distract us from God. But I want you to hear the word of the gospel that your financial irresponsibility or your financial responsibility will not save you, but Christ has done that in his death and resurrection. And you are freed now to live a new life, freed from this greed. But knowing that we are not made perfect in this life yet, but a day will be coming when we can fully worship and love God as he rightly deserves. 
we need to be reminded that there's something worse than death in this life. And there's something better than being rich and famous. There's something better than flourishing with good gifts right now. Money can neither save you from that which is worse than death, nor can it provide something better than being rich. It will not satisfy you. But here again, the good news of Jesus Christ. Even though you will fail to trust God fully when it comes to how you use and love your money, God knows that. Your salvation is not based on your use of money, but it's based on Christ. You are saved by grace through faith, not through good financial decisions or fiscal policies. But we are to use our money now in light of the grace that we have been given. We understand the resources of this world as good gifts of God for the benefit of all people. And therefore, we need to steward our gifts wisely. Well, that's all I've got to say. Is there any questions or comments? Take a, take a moment to assess yourself. Michael, what would be the solution the Christians would offer to the poverty in Africa? For example, where the population is growing dramatically and there's presumably a limited amount of resources. So what would be the Christian answer to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I... I can't assume to know all the answers or have all the solutions. Um, But firstly, we need to recognize the gospel gives us the opportunity to be honest with the sin that lies in this world. And so we need to recognize all the different levels of sin that exist in our world with kind of dictators and um, bullies and uh, nations that aren't cooperating. So, I mean, first and foremost, we preach the gospel. We send missionaries in with the gospel that uh, time and time again has freed people from violence and corruption and all sorts of things. But then I would probably bring in a um, democratic system and a free market and and allow that to flourish. Uh, I think that is the best way of allowing nations to flourish, but I don't think it's the only solution. I think you've got to deal with the problems first before you can put the solution in place. Yeah, Ken. Uh, Marvin Olasky wrote a book called American Compassion. And it traces the role of the church in dealing with politics back in the 1800s and so forth. And when the country got more and more economically segregated, to where people were Um, there's a project going on at the moment, I know in Australia, by a guy called John Dixon, which is called The Church is Far Better and Far Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And it talks about um, 
all the, the atrocities that the church has done, but all the good things that the church has done in bringing education and hospitals and care for the poor and all those kinds of things. Um, that just remind me of that. I wonder, this is just a half-baked thought, but I wonder if it maybe uh, would be useful to turn that whole paradigm on its head that poverty is a problem and the church is the solution. Uh, maybe yeah. uh, the church is the problem. Uh, in the, Sometimes uh, it is. Yeah. In, in the, the Western church, in the, we have this idol, yeah. this lens through which we view the world with money. Yeah. And uh, that poverty may be the solution to that illness, so to speak. And yeah. maybe that we as Western Christians need to listen more carefully to poor Christians. Yeah. Uh, in the world, in the third world, uh, over the mountain, wherever they may be. Yeah. There's a discussion going on in my friendship group about gentrification mm-hmm. and the good and bad of gentrification. And this kind of comes into it. In, we kind of want things to be nice and clean but by making them nice and clean, we kind of get rid of all the people who are there and we kind of move the poverty elsewhere. Um, I don't know how that relates to what you're saying. It, so it's some of the biggest blessings, I'll just say, as is, uh, uh, some of the biggest opportunities for growth as a Christian that I've had in, yeah. uh, in refugee camps, yeah. uh, in um, poor communities where I was supposed to be you know, helping out, but really I was learning from yeah. I'm going to keep, talk, keep musing on that for a second. Um, part of also what you said is that poverty is kind of the solution, which is right, in that our poverty is a solution to great blessings in Christ. Our repentance, our seeking to deny ourselves is the way that we will transform ourselves in our lives. I was just going to say that you know, we think of poverty as a lack of something, but we should look at it as a, a need for something. You know, Christ can make water come from the rock. We can't necessarily think like these goods we take into a community is going to be the yeah. end-all-be-all. Yeah, and they may just be as sinful as us and worship those things. We, um, we were studying yeah. something about how Naaman with his leprosy, and I always thought it was a physical thing that people could see, but it was something eternal, and it was um, something that was going to come out. But here we are looking at poverty and like that's poverty but like mm-hmm. being poor in spirit and not relying on the Lord is the true true poverty the yeah. indication of that yeah yeah alright well before we solve all the problems of the world <laughs> any any last thoughts I think as Christians practically to um, I, I, I mean I just I think about this all the time um, I, I think it's allowing yourself or I guess my encouragement would be to to add a third party meaning I'm not talking about like a financial person just someone else to your finances I think it's very difficult for people but I think it's important for Christians to have someone else assess your relationship with your money mm-hmm. that, that is an impossible thing to self-identify at least I think it is in my own life or with, you know, like you were saying, I think part of the, the problems with money and the identity that comes around money is that it's all so private. Mm-hmm. We live in the Southeast. Yeah. That means we're like particularly private about these things. And so I think that would be my encouragement is if, it, you know, you and your spouse or whoever it is, like it's someone in your life that you trust, it's your minister, it's your whoever, you know, that you get a third party lens 
into your relationship with your money. Mm. And I mean, I, I just think that that's really important as Christians to do. So that would be my yeah. little word from the pastor's wife. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, I'm dating a lovely girl, girl called Rachel, and she'll hate that I'm saying this, but one of the big struggles of our relationship is around money and trying to work out who's paying for what and trying to unseat the greed from our hearts and just wrestling with money. Yeah. When we talk about the Christian response to poverty, etc., in the world, I'm reminded of wandering the streets of Norwood about 40 years ago with a renegade Catholic priest who was at that time a priest at the Advent. A mother whose child is dying of starvation and a mother who's dying of starvation and a mother who does not have the food resources to allow her to nurse her children. Economics and the gospel are strictly academic at the far end of the scale. What we are faced with in the world today is not so much a lack of resources, save the possibility of water looming, mm -hmm. but a maldistribution of it. Mm -hmm. We spoil more food in the United States I was gonna... than would feed half the, yeah. half the, population, the starving was... population of Africa. And what we have to do is make the decision, guided by the gospel, to be our brother's keeper in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. To give up the love of we got to store 50 billion bushels of wheat mm -hmm. and the off chance we might need 5 billion 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah. that, the, the, the problem is gospel oriented on our part, not the part of the people who are in the trouble. Yeah. And were we to make the decisions that a <laughs> rational person would make absent of, of economic greed, we could feed the world and bring them to the gospel a yeah. lot easier than we're doing it now. Yeah, thanks, Coffee. Dan, last word. We need to stop talking about it and just go do something. <laughs> yes. But I don't want you to go from this room thinking that you can solve the world's problems. <laughs> gospel, only the gospel can do that. But go and be free and be fruitful. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.